get started, and um, I know y'all are enjoying a beautiful afternoon. It is uh, nice to have some daylight savings time to enjoy along with that, too. So um, glad you're here. Hope you've had a great, a great uh, weekend. Welcome to April, and uh, this month, too, will go out by way too fast. So remind you of stuff up on the screen up there before I give you some other announcements. Um, make sure you sign up for Eight Days of Hope. The, the first one's already out. And uh, so we're looking forward to uh, making that a part of our week and maybe starting a new tradition here with that. Uh, Good Friday service, of course, at 7, back here in the auditorium. And, and don't just remember that for yourselves. Incorporate that into your invitations for Easter uh, so that folks can come and be a part of, uh, of that service. We usually have a, a good number of visitors here, a good percentage of visitors. And then, of course, next Sunday morning services and next Sunday, no BSF groups, morning or evening. And with the two services, it cancels the morning, and then we typically cancel the evening so families can enjoy time together as part of Resurrection Sunday. So keep those things in mind. A few other announcements uh, from the weekly Connect. Uh, lilies for next Sunday, if you'd like to purchase uh, a lily in memory and honor someone, that detail and sign-up list is at the lobby table. Um, Monday and Tuesday, tomorrow, next couple of evenings, we're hoping that some folks will come help us to uh, do a little bit of yard work, maintenance around the church here that's uh, helping us get ready. We're going to be working on the outside of the church a lot this week, and as the weather allows, so we think Monday and Tuesday be the best two days to do it. So if you can come help us, you're welcome to. Uh, come stay as long as you can, or even part of the time. Uh, Non-official start time, we'll just get whoever's here and get them working on some projects. And then uh, we're regular Wednesday service, and then Good Friday service, of course, and next Sunday, and uh, lots of other things on here, too and information that might be of help to you. So uh, make sure you pick up that. And then, of course, the April Monthly Connect, which has a lot more details and other items entirely, uh, are on that. So make sure you get one of those. You'll be pretty much up to date with everything that's happening. Well, we're continuing with our study of uh, the Baptist, the path of the Baptist. And uh, tonight we're going we're gonna to focus uh, really our attention primarily on Baptist in colonial America, still leading up to the War of Independence. And uh, so we've got some interesting uh, things to look at, and people to meet, and uh, some events to discuss. So uh, let's pray, and we'll, we'll use our time for its best. Father, thank you for our day. What a beautiful day to enjoy and to share and to be together as we um, are able to now turn our attention to this topic, to help us be appreciative of those generations that uh, had the commitment to study your word and to proclaim the gospel. I pray that you'll uh, encourage us through this and remind us of, of our heritage. And I pray that you'll bless our evening here. I pray that you'll bless the many classes that are meeting all through our building, from the youngest to the oldest. And I pray that you'll bless uh, this hour before us. May it be for your glory. And we do pray for those uh, needs that are ahead for us this week. We just pray that you'll bless our church as we anticipate um, a great Easter Sunday. Indeed, Father, we pray for the many churches, all the churches I've spoken to in the area are excited and looking forward to uh, Easter events, special opportunities, share the gospel, and I pray that you'll just bless the efforts that this community indeed might be changed for the glory of Christ, and we might see many and hear of many uh, who have come to faith. And I pray that you'll bless this week for your glory through all that's done. Bless our time before us now in our evening, we pray in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, the path of the Baptist. So uh, I'll sort of have a concluding chart to kind of recap everything we've done. So I'll save some of that review for later. I want to start tonight, though, with an interesting story that you've probably never heard of. Very few people have. It's a story of a Baptist preacher named Obadiah Holmes. So let me tell you a little bit of the story of Obadiah Holmes. He was uh, a Baptist preacher in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, at a time when being a Baptist was not well looked upon by the authorities or by the established church, which was the Congregational Church, the Puritan uh, Pilgrim Heritage Churches. Uh, and the Baptists were seen kind of as a, you know, a sect that you just didn't have much to do with. As a matter of fact, they were, they were threatened. And um, so Holmes led a part of his congregation to leave to leave what they had known as home and to go um, to Rhode Island where there was more liberty of conscience or religious liberty, we might call it. And um, they established a, a church there, a congregational church there with Baptist doctrines. 
Word got to him, though, that one of the men who used to be in his congregation, uh, elderly, not able to get out, confined to home, right? It even happened in the 1700s or 1600s. Um, and so Obadiah Holmes and got two other men from his church to go back um, to north of Boston. I think, I think the name of the community is Lynn, Massachusetts. And they went and visited, just a house visit. Catch up with someone who they had worshipped with, served with in their local congregation to share some time with him, visit, to read the scriptures, pray together. They even, um, best I remember, they did communion with him because uh, he hadn't been out, been able to get out. In the middle of all of this, while they're in the home, um, there are, the house has two authority figures, we'd call them policemen today, who come to the house, see what's happening, and they immediately arrest those three Baptist men who had come to just to visit an elderly person in their home. They arrest them, take them back to Boston, and where they were known because of their previous time there, and they were taken before the magistrate, and the magistrate council found them guilty of heresy, mainly said that you're not one of us, so therefore you must be a heretic. And uh, the three men were all fine. They were given an option for their punishment. They could, um, they could pay the fine. Of the three men, because he was the pastor, Obadiah Holmes got the largest of the fine. I think one man was fined five pounds, right, in British money uh, for the colonies. Uh, another one, 20 pounds. And Obadiah Holmes was fined 30 pounds. The men, of course, are away from home. They have no way to pay it. Someone in the community, having pity upon them, offers to pay the fine for all of them. To set them free, meet their obligation, then go back to Rhode Island and know that they are certainly not welcome to come to Massachusetts. The other two men accepted the offer and allowed their fine to be paid, and they were released accordingly. Obadiah Holmes, though, said he would not accept the charity of others for an act that he had been accused of doing. And so... Uh, the, the court said, well, if you will not accept the 30 pounds fine that will be paid for you, then the alternative is to take 30 lashes with the whip. By the way, this is a public whipping in those days, right? So um, he took a, they gave him, I think, a day to, to think it over. I don't know how long it took me to think that over, but he, he took a day to think it over came back the next day and said, uh, I, I cannot but stand for what my conscience believes is right and what the Bible teaches, and um, I will accept your punishment in the name of Christ and for the cause of the gospel, basically. Pretty strong stand. So a public whipping is established. And, uh, before the day is over, he is taken out and tied to a post, and the, uh, punish, the punishment was executed with a whip that had three uh, three rings to it, or, or, th or three tails to it, I suppose you'd say, to the whip. And he was given his 30 lashes, which in many ways turned out to be 90 lashes. It was extremely intense, of course. He is removed, as this painting intends to, um, to show, he was removed from the post, and um, his back, of course, laden and bloody. He was panting and breathing very heavily. Some people said it was a... It was a uh, a miracle he even survived the lashing himself. He gathered his breath, though, to say to those around him, standing around him, uh, you have but beaten me with roses. He, uh, he said, it, you know, it was, it was not, a, not a pain to him. It was a joy for him to take the lashing for the cause of Christ. Witnesses said his, his recovery, of course, took weeks from this and said his recovery, could, he could only find comfort either laying on his stomach or more often found comfort on all fours, like in a crawling position because of the, the sensitivity to his back, of course. And of course, those were scars he carried with him the rest of his life. Word of this, word of this beating, of course, spread pretty quickly, even before the days of radio, television, and social media. And uh, because it had been uh, so severely executed and because it was one group of Christians, the Puritans, you know, which the Puritans, again, um, of New England uh, had quite a stance on this. We, I'd mentioned before and we talked about the Congregationalist 
um, during this time period, they executed four Quakers. And the ones who were fortunate or blessed enough not to be executed by the Congregationalists, many of them had their, an ear cut off. They would have their tongue cut out. I mean, that's just the kind of rules that they established in Massachusetts if you weren't one of the Congregationalist Puritans. And um, uh, it was, Massachusetts, by the way, was the last state, I'm going to put a date in the 1830s, I think 1834, Massachusetts was the last state in the Union to allow religious freedom. Uh, up until that point, and in this time, and through the colonial period, of course, the two states that, that stood out as having religious liberty were Pennsylvania, which was a Quaker state. Wait, sounds like an oil uh, for some of us, we'll know that. Uh, which was a Quaker state, and then Rhode Island, which was established by the Baptist. Those two colonies had religious freedom. And so you get a sense of just how intense it was in some places to be, number one, Baptist, and number two, in a non-Baptist friendly state. That type of persecution to the Baptist was not limited to Massachusetts, though it was true in other places. Let me, let me reintroduce you to where we stopped at last week with this man, William Scriven, who is a Baptist um, that went to Maine. He was in the Massachusetts, uh, New England Baptist area also, was where he, uh, he came to Christ and his convictions became Baptist. Uh, he established the first Baptist church in Maine, in Kittery, Maine, in uh, 1682. But even from there, the, the uh, Congregationalists and the authorities of Connecticut uh, threatened him and fined him for being a Baptist in Maine. Why? Why? The authorities in Connecticut had been given authority over the territory of Maine at the time. It wasn't a, wasn't a colony, just a territory. And so the English authorities had given the ruling of Maine to, the, to Connecticut as a colony. And so they even found him up there and said, you, you can't do this. We'll fine you, we'll punish you, we'll arrest you, whatever. So he took the small congregation that he had assembled from his work in ministry, and they moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and there established the First Baptist Church of Charleston. You see that date in 1696. Um, Scriven's one of those names, again, that's lost in, in history for many folks. If you're from the Charleston area, you'll know the name, especially if you're a Baptist. As a matter of fact, the, the Baptist Association around Charleston, around greater Charleston, South Carolina, is called the Scriven Baptist Association in honor of his work in coming there to establish the first Baptist church in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So it's an interesting time for sure. And again, uh, time prohibits lots more stories, but I promise you there are good books uh, on this topic of Baptist history that will give you a lot more detail and insights to the time and to the events of the day. There are some good uh, YouTube videos uh, that, are, that I think do a, a fine job in generally going through some of this and even giving more detail uh, to things along that line. I'll introduce you later in our study in a few weeks to another Baptist group that uh, has certainly some impact to some of this. But Scriven is certainly a name that's recognized and remembered too. This is a time when the Baptists in colonial America are still starting to get their legs under them, so to speak. They're starting to assemble in the congregations. They're finding where they can, they can exercise their faith and begin to follow Baptist doctrines. And uh, one of the most important turning points of this time period happens in Philadelphia. Um, so we, we all have, uh, you know, Bob Idekavish to thank for this because he's from Philadelphia, right? Um, the Philadelphia Baptist Association. Finally, some churches get together. Again, where's Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, which is a religiously free colony. Five churches in the Philadelphia community, the five Baptist churches, assembled themselves to form the first Baptist Association in America, primarily for these purposes, Right? I mean, association. They have no authority over the local congregations. That is still true today in Baptist associations. They have no doctrinal authority. They have no administrative or ministerial authority over the churches. They just are there to help support one another and to provide guidance when needed for churches and recommendations. So these, are their, these were their original sort of call to orders. Uh, to advise member churches, to warn churches about errant pastors. There are some very interesting stories of 
pastors who were wolves in sheep's, sheep's clothing, among the Baptists particularly. And uh, some of them were really scoundrels. There's no doubt about it. I mean, they would, they would be headline news today, just to let you know the right things. Some things never change. They would be headline news today, uh, the conduct that they, can, that they did. Because, again, it's a time when you could walk in and have forged documents. Here, I have a degree from this university. I'm coming from England. I've preached at these churches. You could come in with all those forged documents to America, and they had no way to verify it. So there are some stories that float around from the 16 and 1700s about those situations. So that was a big deal. We wouldn't think of that being a big deal today because we have the ability to validate somebody's story, right? But in that day and time, this was a big issue. Uh, disorderly churches, how, what's a disorderly church? Uh, it simply means that they're straying from the traditional Baptist doctrines that were being laid down. They're taking this path or that path. It was really about doctrine. It wasn't about form, uh, form of your church, you know, how the order of your church went. It certainly was about the doctrine and the preaching that was going on. To maintain harmony among the churches, among the sister churches, to promote confessions and doctrinal unity. We today don't hear the term confession too much in our Baptist circles, but that's, a, that's basically a statement of belief. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term with a long history in Christianity for sure. And doctrinal unity, not uniformity. It's not that everybody has a rubber stamp of their doctrinal statement. It's just they, they stay within the same boundaries of doctrinal truth. To address important social political issues. Uh, and of the day, one of the early uh, issues, uh, certainly with slavery, even in colonial America, there were Baptists. And we'll meet uh, one, if not this week, next time we meet. Um, who was an outspoken voice to that. So the Baptists were starting to make, um, uh, make, uh, make that a public issue. And, of course, that becomes a bigger issue when you get into the 1800s. Education for training up ministers. That was a big issue because there were no Baptist training facilities in the colonies. Harvard and Yale uh, were uh, congregationalist universities. Harvard um, first was a university begun by the, by the Puritans, or the Pilgrims, we might say. Um, Yale was a breakaway from Harvard, and um, the Baptists were saying, how do we train up our ministers? We have no schools for them. I'll mention before we finish today how one, one of the answers to that question. And then also fellowship between church leaders, so pastors and church leaders who get together. Uh, that is still a good thing and, uh, to discuss and, and, uh, and to share conversation over church issues and social issues, those kind of things. And then lastly, to address the local, the, uh, to address the local mission field, you should say. you got too, too many words in there. To address the local mission field. They were trying to say, how can we take what we do at church and impact our community? You're right. We're still saying that today as a Baptist church. Uh, how can we address the needs of our community? What programs, what outreach, what, what uh, services can we provide? And so that was very, very true back then. And so uh, that association will become the premier influencer of early Baptists, particularly in the Northeast. And interesting enough, um, it'll even have its play in the South, as we'll see um, in just a moment. So... It's early 1700s. As you sort of turn the pages of a decade or two, you get to a time called the uh, Great Awakening, the American First Great Awakening, which happens in the early 1700s. Usually 1730s is a pretty good starting point for that. And that will go up until really the beginning of the War of Independence. There was a great religious movement in America for decades. Um, and the, the real movers in that Great Awakening were primarily... Um, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Baptists. All three denominations uh, have great stories of what was happening during this time period as churches were being established in, com in new communities, as the colonies were starting to grow and new towns were being established. One of the first things that happened was, let's go take a church to that community. So uh, many times there were years when there were more demand than there were pastors to fill that demand. Um, one of the most innovative movements of that time period was the Methodist work of what we'd call a circuit-riding preacher. Well, let's figure out a way to have one guy who serves three or four churches. And that way it sort of helps with the, the, the demand. 
So the first great awakening, the greatest voice of, the, of that era, their Billy Graham, if you will, was a man named George Whitfield. And this is a painting of Whitfield preaching. Easy to see him. He's on the top left there with his, his uh, ministerial robes uh, and his hands raised. George Whitfield was an Anglican. He was from the Church of England. And, but he was more of a revival preacher, as we would call him today. And in the Church of England, that did not go over very well. You know, they're the very, very stiff-collared and very formal. And Whitfield just was a different character. And he, he preached the gospel hard and furious. And the need to accept Christ as Savior. And what the Bible taught, he was very much of that mindset. And as a, as a result, he did not find many open-door opportunities in England. He came to America, which had very much a Church of England influence. After all, we're colonies of England. And he begins that preaching here, and he finds similarly the many of the Anglican churches would not open their doors to him. And so he went out um, to, uh, to preach in the fields, preach in the streets. He preached in the streets of Philadelphia, preached in the fields of communities. You can see how the people gathered. He was without a doubt the most uh, influential voice of American Christianity during the uh, First Great Awakening in and uh, he had proven himself over and over again to be, to be very true to the gospel. Because the Anglican Church, or the Church of England, had turned their backs on him for the most part, he found fellowship with these denominations who were preaching the gospel more faithfully, the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists. And another group that's not a denomination, we'll see them in just a second, called the Separatists. The Separatists was an interesting group of the time period because this was a group of who said, we just don't identify with any denomination. We don't like what the Church of England teaches, but we're also not willing to change our position on baptism, for example. So we won't be Baptist. We will just be separate. And they became separatist. And eventually they found them, their way into denominations for sure, but it would take a while. And so Whitfield found separatist preachers and other um, evangelical denominations, and he would preach for them. He, was, he, would, he would draw a big crowd. Whitfield was, was quite a personality uh, that split many of the American uh, church leaders. You either were for Whitfield or against him. You either wanted to stay formal and strict and, and the way we've always done things, or are you willing to open up your pulpit and just let him have at it, right? So... Um, Again, the most influential voice of his day in America. From the great, first Great Awakening, there were, really was a solidification of a group called Separatist, which became, many of them, Separate Baptist. Now, that's not a label that you see on a lot of churches anymore. We'll see it a couple of times as we continue, but you don't see it a lot. The term Separate Baptist means that they separate, their heritage is, they separated from the established churches. So the first generation of those Christians or those Baptists came out of the Anglican church or the Presbyterian church, which was having similar splits between formality and revivalism. So when people left those established churches and established their own congregations, they didn't know what to call themselves, so they called themselves separatists. Eventually, from within that group, Many said, oh, I've heard what the Baptists are teaching. That, that's me. That's who I am. And they would go establish separate Baptist congregations. So it's not a term you hear as much today, but it's one you'll read about as you go through the late 16, early 1700s. It was uh, this group of Baptists were a product of the Great Awakening, as were all separatists to some degree. Uh, they were very revival-centered and Bible-focused. They would anticipate and expect every person to have a born-again testimony. But you can say this, this is not necessarily the day and the hour, but this is my story of how I came to Christ or how Christ brought, the gospel brought me to Christ and I repented of my sins and, and I confessed my need for a Savior and I accepted Christ, right? The, the born-again mentality that, well, again, is very, very common in our, in our setting. Uh, they were starting to do that. That was not the requirement for all churches. There were some of the established churches. This was one of the things that divided the Christians of that era. There were established churches that said, you want to be a church member? All you have to do is promise to live a godly life. 
Just live like a Christian and you can be a church member. And again, for a lot of people who said, you know, that's really not the way the Bible portrays what it means to be a Christian. They took a little, a little more uh, alignment with this mentality of you should be able to give a testimony of your faith in Christ. And so that was a requirement for church membership that was established. The mode of baptism varied. There were still, in, in the late 16s, even into the, well into the 1700s, there were still debates about how do you baptize people, even among the Baptists. And it's very common to read stories, especially of church leaders who said, you know, I was raised in the Church of England world of church, and we continued to sprinkle the baby, baptize the baby. Then there were came a time when this teaching of believer's baptism, you shouldn't be baptized until you confess your faith in Christ. That's the biblical model. Okay, that's great, but now the question you have to answer is, how are you baptized? Sometimes they retained uh, the pouring, the idea of just simply standing you in a spot and pouring a pot of water over you was a satisfactory baptism method. Obviously, the idea of immersion, as we will call it, during the time period, you will hear the term dunking used. You dunk somebody, you know, or dip somebody, were two terms that were used during that period. So, there was still some debate, even among the Baptists, about exactly how to do baptism, but there was uniformity upon the fact that baptism should not be done until, you can, until you're old enough to confess Christ as Savior. So that, that issue doesn't get settled for a while. There's still a lot of, you know, debate for that um, going on at the time for sure. These churches were persecuted by the established denominations and even civil authorities. Again, it sounds so foreign to us, but it was very true of the day. Someone from the county office could come to your church and tell your pastor, you can't have church anymore, you're not an authorized assembly or you don't have a license to preach. And there are many stories of Baptist preachers who, who during the service, authorities came in and took the pastor from the pulpit and led him out to take him to jail. There are plenty of those stories. There's even worse. Sometimes what the, what the established churches would do was they would, they would go hire some of the thugs of the community to go harass the pastor. So these thugs might show up at your house and say, oh, you want to preach the gospel, huh? You don't want to stand for this church. You want to stand for being a Baptist. And they would sort of give him the, the once-over. There's even stories of Baptists being pulled from the pulpit and drugged through the city streets, Baptist preachers, because, again, they weren't within the confines of what these civil authorities considered an established and authorized church. So, again, those are the kind of stories that you find if you dig into more detail that we're not going to get into. But it is, a, 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 I think, a... Important reminder that generations have gone before us, like Obadiah Holmes and others, who were willing to stand for their convictions and even to go to prison and to uh, endure the punishment and the fines that went with it. So it was a, they were, that's why there's so much movement often of, of the Baptist groups. Now, one of the most important names, we've talked so much about the Baptists in New England, we've got to get the Baptists down here, right? So uh, uh, we, we get... Uh, uh, Scriven to Charleston, South Carolina, because at the time, Charleston was certainly a major city in the South. It was a port city, obviously, and it has been since its founding, uh, an important city for the colonial period. But our attention turns to a new name now, and that is Shubal Stearns. Um, Shubal Stearns is one of those names that I think every Baptist here in North Carolina certainly needs to know. Let's introduce ourselves to him a little bit. Originally from the Northeast, too, originally from Connecticut. He was converted under the preaching of George Whitfield during that great awakening in America. Came to Christ, has a testimony of being born again. He will, within his community, become a leading voice for religious freedom and uh, even was a signer to some documents that were sent to the authorities to, to make the case for religious liberty in Connecticut. And... Again, being converted to Whitfield was not being converted to being a Baptist. It simply was an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. So Shubal Stearns goes through this same debate in his own mind back and forth. Who do I identify with? 
I'm not in, you know, Whitfield was an Anglican, but even he didn't like the Anglicans in America. The other denominations, he just did not find a place to settle. And even the entire issue, again, of baptism. How was somebody baptized? So it, it took a while for him, but he finally came to a conviction of Baptist principles in 1751 by his own, by his own testimony. And he, there in the Northeast, was an, one who organized one of the separatist Baptist churches uh, that was a congregation of people, again, just getting together saying, we're, we're now the established churches. We have Baptist convictions, and we want to be an independent church. A few years later, he will give the testimony that the Lord placed upon him a call of ministry and a call to go be a missionary. So in 1754, he heads south. They, um, he and uh, his family come to Virginia. And there they will meet his sister and brother-in-law who have already been missionaries serving originally in Pennsylvania to Native Americans. But they had since moved to the Norfolk, Virginia area. And they visit with them for a while. And they think maybe they'll stay there, but he doesn't really have peace about that. And decides to go further south. Now, going further south is into the wilderness of the Carolinas. And you can imagine that travel in the 1750s, what that was like. Very slow, very tedious, very demanding for sure. So he comes to North Carolina, and he... Uh, after leaving Virginia, and will settle in Sandy Creek, North Carolina, which is southeast of where we're at, Good, southeast of Greensboro, for sure, in that direction, towards Sanford. And um, he will establish there a Baptist assembly. He starts the Sandy Creek Baptist Church at the beginning of the next year, 1755, and this church sees Tremendous growth. He goes from initially a group of about 20, basically all of them just kind of living in the community there, uh, to over 600. Now think of the growth of that in just a few years. From 20 to 600. That's, that's, at the time, that was what would be called a mega church for sure. And uh, that's a good-sized church today. This particular church, though, would be the mother church that would send out missionaries all through the Carolinas and Virginia. And over the next 17 years, 42 different churches would be established from those who left Sandy Creek Baptist to go to other places, including the Carolinas, of course, South Carolina, Virginia. And just a, a couple of, a few years after that, in 1758, he will do what has already been done in Philadelphia. And uh, Scrivens has done it in Charleston, South Carolina. And that is create a Baptist association of churches to network together and to cooperate and to work together for the cause of the gospel and for the community. So he starts the Sandy Creek Baptist Association, which is still in operation today. Now think about that for a moment. From 1758 to 2023, they are still in operation, still serving the community of their Baptist churches in that area. Now, of course, the idea of an association has multiplied itself throughout the world of Baptist churches. We here in the Guilford County area are within the regional um, um, area that would be considered the Piedmont Baptist Association for the very same reason. You go up toward Mount Airy, uh, there's a Foothills Baptist Association. I mean, there's all these little regional associations um, that uh, churches can participate with for the same purpose. It's always been just as it was started in 1707 in Philadelphia. By the way, Bob, you missed my bragging on Philadelphia because we had our first Baptist association there in 1707. And I said, we can have Bob Idecavage, I think, for that, no doubt. So uh, the Sandy Creek Baptist Association. Now, I mentioned last time about some of the beliefs of early Baptists. Let's talk about the, early, the beliefs. There's nine particular beliefs of the early Sandy Creek Baptist, the North Carolina Baptist. And if, if you have the capacity to do so, I bet it wouldn't take you too many generations to go back and find out um, that you might have some heritage within the Sandy Creek Baptist. 
Here are some of the early practices, nine of them particularly. Baptism, of course. They'll have to figure out whether to immerse or to pour, but eventually they get, they get it right and immerse. Communion, by the way, which they did weekly, right? So that's a, that's a little different structure, but they certainly can do that. No problem with that. Foot washing. Everybody needs a good foot washing every once in a while, right? Most of you familiar with foot washing, right? A foot washing service is something many Baptists will, will, will still practice. Uh, primitive Baptists will do foot washing. It's basically... Um, uh, to sort of bounce off Pastor Nick's sermon this morning. It is a public display of humility because it takes, it obviously mimics the action of Christ to the disciples there in the upper room, but it's intended to portray the idea of brotherly service. You know, if I wash your feet, I'm taking a servant's position. I'm humbling myself to do that. So again, that was not common most evangelical denominations and many Baptists since have not practiced foot washing, but again, it, there's nothing against it. It's just one of those things that has its place in some people's mind. The laying on of hands. I mentioned last week this was a tradition that had been picked up um, for a couple of reasons. And it, again, over the, it, it means different things in different denominations today, so I won't chase that at all. But the idea of laying on of hands could be in some Baptist circles, it simply meant after a person presented themselves for church membership or after they had been baptized, they were accepted into church membership by the laying on of hands. It could be done by the pastor or it could be done by the pastor and deacons, but it was done as a public display of acceptance. You have publicly displayed your willingness to be a part of this congregation we will likewise publicly display our willingness to receive you into our congregation. So there were some Baptists who practiced laying on of hands that way. Others in the Baptist circles would interpret laying on of hands as being, um, being a, a sign of authority. And if you've not been to a, um, a deacon ordination service, Baptists, including us, still practice laying on of hands in that setting where the deacons will do a laying on of hands ceremony, and all it does is indicate the authority and the acceptance and the approval of the church leadership for this man to be in this position. And so again, it, it, over the centuries and within different branches of the Baptist, it's sort of found a different meaning in different settings. But that was one of the things they practiced. Love feast, you know what we'd call love feast? A fellowship meal. Just everybody bring your stuff and let's eat. Right? I mean, boy, I wonder how long it took them to think of that one. Um, but they call it a love feast because we're sharing together in Christian love a meal together. That was basically the definition to it. Um, and the love feast actually has its heritage back in Christians in Europe. Um, the um, Christians of Eastern Europe, the Hussites, uh, generally are credited with having the first display of that. And through the years, it's sort of in and out of some denominations, but, you know, it's still true in a lot of denominations. Anointing the sick with oil, that's a biblical, that has a biblical place, um, and uh, that's, that's a practice that is, uh, that is certainly accepted in a lot of Baptist circles today. The right hand of fellowship, you know, which is more than just greeting, it's a greeting in the name of the Lord, complemented with the kiss of charity or the kiss of love. You know, the scripture says, um, greet each, each other with a holy kiss. That's the idea. It's greeting each other not just as, hey, it's good to see you. It's good to see you here at church on Sunday in the name of the Lord. Bless you. I mean, it's an expression of Christian thought to do that. And devoting children. I like the terminology they use for that. Uh, we, we do uh, devoting children here. It's called a children's dedication service. Uh, what, what some churches in the early Baptist would practice would be the devoting children was done at a time when you publicly announced the child's name. It was much in the mindset of what we think of with a, de a dedication service, and that is a child is brought by their parents, dedicated to the Lord, much in the model of uh, Hannah bringing Samuel in the Old Testament, dedicating that child to the Lord and committing to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
much the same thing. There was a few other, sometimes some layers added to it, right? So very little in that list of those early practicing Baptists of the 17, late 1700s would we disagree with. We might disagree a little bit about the form it takes, but we understand where it comes from. And, and again, in one way or another, many of those uh, activities are practiced. But I'll give you a fair warning. Don't expect a foot washing ceremony to be on the schedule anytime soon. Okay, that's, that's uh, one that we just haven't ventured into with very much success. But again, it's always good to have your feet washed. Uh, this particular painting intended to show Schubel Stearns and his early ministry as a pastor. Uh, you know, all, all the good speakers dressed in black. You'll, yeah, yeah, you'll catch it, right? You'll catch it. Um, uh, Schubel Stearns and his congregation there meeting out in the field. And that's where they started. And, and uh, you can almost hear his voice echo and ring as he's holding the Bible in one hand and, and, uh, and preaching. Today, if you ride down that area, there's actually a road marker put up by the state, mother of Sandy uh, Baptist Church, the mother of separate Baptist churches. So again, I'm, I'm sure 99.9% of the people read that and have no clue what it means. Uh, but we, we, hopefully we now do. First churches across the South, founded by Schubel Stearns, 1755, buried just a couple of miles from this marker. So again, his is a name that I think every Baptist should at least be appreciative of, and his commitment to come to a place uh, that, uh, that certainly had its challenges. Without a doubt, during this time period, though, the most, one of the most influential Baptists all along the colonies uh, is someone back up in the north, and that is a man named Isaac Bacchus. Isaac Bacchus is one of those interesting stories that's so typical of what you see many generations are, are many examples of pastors and church leaders go through. He started life in a New England Congregationalist community, was raised in Anglican. But following the Great Awakening, during that time period, became a separatist in 1745, meaning he stepped away from the established church of the New England um, uh, congregationalist. I'm a Christian, I'm born again, I'm just, that's just not who they are. So he steps away and becomes a separatist. It will take him uh, a, near, uh, a little more than a decade to find himself identifying as a Baptist. And he wrestles, again, he wrestles with so many things that are part of what it means to be a Christian in this time frame and to be a Baptist particularly. And he finally comes to this point of acknowledging and recognizing uh, that, yes, indeed, he finds his, his convictions lying with the Baptist. He will be an influential voice for the Baptist for, for several decades uh, and, and, and will, will have a ripple effect through the colonies as the Baptists continue to grow and establish themselves. Uh, he will be an influential preacher uh, even during the War of Independence. And that's another side story. Where were the Baptists in the War of Independence? Uh, just like they are today all over the place. You had some Baptists that were wholeheartedly in favor of independence. You had others who were against it. Um, and you had some who kind of said, y'all do what you're going to do. We're not going to get involved. They're pacifists. And um, it became an issue as to how prayers were being made in the church for the War of Independence. Did you pray for the king or did you pray for George Washington? right? And or did you pray for none of them and just said, we're going to live life and y'all do what you have to and we're going to be Christians here and, and, uh, and continue with our lives. One of the most influential positions I mentioned earlier that the Baptists were wrestling with during the 1700s is getting some institutional training for the Baptist pastors. Uh, the young men who would feel the call to preach, where do they go? They don't want to send them to Harvard and Yale and so the beginning of, uh, of a campus in Rhode Island, where else, right? The first state that Baptists would, would find a settling place um, that we now know today is Brown University uh, in the Ivy League, of course. Um, so they have a, Brown University has a Baptist heritage. And this is the first of many, uh, and I'm going to mention this, uh, I think, in the next lesson, uh, in two weeks. We're going to talk about the Baptist heritage of education. All the different universities, I won't go through all of them, but I'll certainly have someone, some that you'll know, that have a Baptist heritage to them. And uh, this was the first here in America where they felt like they could take their uh, young men who felt a call to ministry and train them and teach them up 
um, in the truth of scriptures. And of course, there's many opportunities to do that today. Another very influential name, especially toward the latter part of the 1700s, is John Leland. John Leland shares a familiar story. He started in the Northeast, uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, but found being a Baptist in those places difficult, if not impossible. And so he finally comes to Virginia, where there was more, a little more religious liberty. Anglicans still dominated the Carolinas and Virginia through, during the colonial period and the, in the uh, War of Independence period, but uh, not quite so severely were the uh, laws against them. And so Leland finds himself in Virginia during and following the War of Independence. Quite an interesting place to be in Virginia during that time period because you, act, you sort of run across some pretty important people if you're in Virginia. And uh, as part of that, uh, after the War of Independence, of course, is settled and America is trying to uh, get all the political issues settled, figured out, uh, Leland becomes the most influential voice in Virginia to encourage the Baptist to support James Madison's Constitution of the United States and, the, um, uh, and uh, the Ten Amendments, the Bill of Rights. So Leland is recognized, even in secular history books, as being one of the most influential voices behind the acceptance in Virginia of the Constitution because once he met with Madison, went over the details and some of the things, especially about the First Amendment, which, which speaks of religious liberty, um, then when Leland put his approval on it, uh, 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 the Baptist community of Virginia pretty much fell in line. And, uh, you know, the rest, they say, is history. Leland in Virginia, one of the things that he found um, opposition to was the fact that he opposed slavery. One of the earliest voices in America's history to, to do that, certainly from the Baptist voice. And uh, so he's a man recognized in lots of historical places as being influential in both social and political issues of the day, uh, a heritage that Baptists uh, have often leaned toward themselves, for sure. So that's, again, you know, look at the time period. We're, we're in the latter 1700s, uh, other things ahead for us. And uh, we're going to finish this study, by the way, at the end of April. So uh, we're heading toward a little more modern times. Let's kind of review just quickly as we finish um, sort of where we've come from. Over in, the, over in England, of course, the top left, you have the, those who separate from the Church of England, the English separatists, some of which will become those pilgrims that come to America in 1620. And then you've got the separatists who will go to Holland and come back, not to become a pilgrim like the others, but to establish uh, separate congregations in England, which was also against the law at the time. And that, and that group will become the first beginnings of what we would call English Baptists. They did not call themselves Baptists. The term Baptist for this group will not be used until the 1640s or 50s. And so it's a ways before they're called Baptist. Thomas Helwes is uh, the name we identified there. He led that first congregation. And because he was the leader of the congregation, was arrested by the civil authorities in 1612, and he will die in 1616 in prison under the leadership of King, King James, of the King James Bible, who would have nothing to do with these separatists. You know, you're either a member of the Church of England or you're an outlaw. And that, that mindset, by the way, will carry on through the 1600s up until 1688. So it's a long time yet before Baptists get much freedom even in England. Those who leave England come to New England and we established Baptist congregations then in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in Maine, in Philadelphia. And then some of those will come south, as Scrivens did and as Stearns did. And so you go there. During that time period, you have the Philadelphia Baptist Association, 1707, and the earliest of the separatist churches found in the 1700s. From those separatist churches, some will develop into separate Baptists. The late 1600s, early 1700s. Again, uh, Scrivens in 1696 and uh, Stearns in 1755 will come to the south um, preaching the gospel through the Baptist. And then the associations that are uh, the first two southern associations anyway, the Charleston Baptist Association, very much modeled after the Philadelphia Baptist Association, and then the Sandy Cross Baptist Association in 1758. So that's kind of where we've come thus far, right? We've come a long way in a short amount of time. But it is, again, a recognition of generations who went before us, who had to make some hard decisions, 
who had to make choices based upon conviction. And sometimes that choice meant going to jail or going to prison or being fined. There are stories that the civil authorities, again, there's so many stories to tell. Um, there are stories of civil authorities raiding people's houses just because they were Baptist and stealing and taking things. They would take their, their house goods. I mean, you know, pots and pans weren't easy to find in the 1600s, 1700s. And they would take their house goods. They would take their cattle. They would take their crops. They would take their oxen. The things that they made a living with. Just why? Just because they were Baptist. And so we get a sense of what moved them and motivated them to go to other places rather than give up their convictions. Let me tell you one last story real quick before we finish. Obadiah Holmes, I hope it's a name you'll remember. Go read something about the article and get more details about what Obadiah Holmes and the, the movement that this event of him being whipped uh, resulted in. Obadiah Holmes would himself be maybe a minor character in the history of the United States, but he would have a great, 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 great grandson I bet you've heard of named Abe Lincoln. And so it's interesting to see how all these pieces start to connect the dots to fill in other places in history, too. Well, before we close tonight, I want to remind you again, we're supporting um, um, the Appel family and uh, glad to do so. This is, a, again, a Baptist family uh, serving the Lord in the mission field of South, uh, the South Pacific and uh, faithfully doing so. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that they're on furlough here in the States, hopefully, and getting uh, Jed and Amy back here to visit with us. They have been here before. And uh, we're glad to support them. So uh, anything you want to put in an envelope, just put their name on or the boxes out on the table. You can drop it in and it will all go to them. Well, I trust you have a great week ahead. Looking forward to an exciting week here at church. And, and uh, again, uh, make sure you signed up for those uh, eight days of hope. And we're looking forward to a great Sunday next week for sure. Well, let's pray as we go. Father, thank you for our time today. We're reminded of your goodness, not only to us, but to generations before us who stood firmly upon the convictions of truth and what the Bible teaches and who preached the gospel that is certainly from the Bible. May we be a similar generation. May we be encouraged by them and reminded of the, of the importance of taking a stand for truth. And I pray that you'll uh, bless our week ahead. I pray that you'll bless our preparations and planning as we look forward to Sunday, to Friday's communion service, to Wednesday's service. We just pray, Father, you'll be honored through those things ahead for us. And I uh, pray that indeed we'll be faithful as our witness. Uh, as we serve the living Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord bless everyone. Hope you have a great evening.